support this show and all of the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at a dollar a month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels. Heartlandpod.com. Click the Patreon link or just go to Patreon and search for the Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. Hey folks, it's Adam Summer. Welcome back to the Heartland Pod. This is Thursday, June 29th. Usually you would hear a Dirt Road Democrat today, but uh, Jess Piper uh, is out of the office. She is on a vacation with her family, well-deserved. She's been working very hard for the folks in uh, not just Missouri, but concentrated certainly on Missouri. And so she's got the uh, this week off, and uh, we're all going to take off next week. So I just wanted to take today to do uh, a quick show for folks about this Moore versus Harper case. This was the Supreme Court case that just came down uh, this week, came out on the 27th of June. It was a 6-3 to three ruling and what uh, a lot of folks would call a landmark kind of a case. Uh, and so I'm going to get into that and, and dig into that a little bit here on this episode. So stick with me and uh, yeah, we'll do 5-10 minutes and uh, understand what's going on together a little bit better. Here we go. All right, so Moore versus Harper. Basic thing to understand about this case at its core is that it really is about federalism versus anti-federalism, okay? Uh, this is the same argument, and I've talked about this before on some other shows, some other episodes. This is essentially an argument that has been going on since really before ratification of the Constitution, uh, it's it's why we wound up with a constitution instead of an articles of confederation. So it's kind of a, a case that requires us to step back and take that sort of 30,000 foot view and then zoom in a little bit on the past, pull back out, and then we can kind of come to the future. So let's do that. Let's, let's, let's back up completely and take a look at the U.S. system in, in a broader sense, okay? We, we talk a lot about democracy, and, you know, of course, there's always the, it's a republic, not a democracy. You know, the bottom line is we have a democratic republic. Uh, we have direct elections of representatives who then go on to represent us at the, uh, you know, higher levels of government. It's democracy. Uh, and so at its core, what we have is a system that is designed to essentially feed from the bottom up. That, that really is... You know, if you take a look at the, the the kind of power that, say, your local government, whether it's your your city government or your town, whatever it is, uh, your school boards, your county commissioners, uh, in most places, maybe a county health board, uh, your your library probably has a board of trustees. So these are all local governments that have the kind of power that you know when they shift something, you might feel it. It might touch your everyday life pretty quickly, maybe even immediately, right? The, if the city you live in votes to, uh, you know, f- fund a, a road project, you're going to notice that. Uh, either it's because of delays in construction or because, uh, you know, a road that you use regularly suddenly will be nicer. So that is something that's important to sort of underpin is that's where, you know, when we talk about the different powers that we have, obviously the federal government doesn't really 
have that sort of power. The federal government doesn't come to your city and fix your roads, right? They might provide funding to the states to then trickle that through the state governments and to the local governments. And and so, you know, in a roundabout way, the federal government redistributes tax dollars to then fix roads, right? We're seeing that right now. I uh, talk about that for tomorrow's flyover view a little bit. Uh, a lot of states just got a bunch of money, for example, for broadband. Uh, the Biden administration just uh, announced a huge thing. So, you know, your, your local government is tinkering with those things that immediately impact you. The federal government is sort of shifting larger pieces around. And then, of course, in the middle is your state government. And so what we come down to with this federalist, anti-federalist thing is, where's the balance of that power? Okay, so under the Articles of Confederation versus the Constitution is the place that I want to talk about next. So in the Articles of Confederation, uh, there really wasn't much of a centralized body. Yeah, there, there was. There was a meeting of, of you know, a centralized government, but it didn't really have a, a central figurehead. It didn't really have much power. Uh, it really couldn't do much of anything. And the states were sort of almost more of a European-style system, you know, pre-modern EU, okay? They all worked together, uh, but there was a lot of competition. There were currency issues, trade issues, you know, all kinds of different problems, especially obviously from north to south uh, because of the different laws and, and different labor situations. Uh, and, and, and you're coming off of the Revolutionary War, where some states, of course, uh, had much more money than other states. Uh, the, the North carried a lot of debt coming out of the war. The South didn't carry as much debt. And so there was, there was a lot of friction going on there. And at that point in time, it just was pretty clear that the Articles of Confederation was not going to be sufficient to allow for uh, enough protection and stability to ensure that, uh, you know, this new nation that was forming sort of in the in the primordial ooze of its creation uh, that that it would be able to continue on it was very susceptible at the beginning very very weak Uh, there was always fear that britain could come back that france could come in even uh, plenty of fear uh, about uh, you know european power essentially coming in and and toppling this new nation so cut to the uh, constitutional convention uh, you know, we have lots of debate, and you know, ultimately, they they essentially scrap the Articles of Confederation. Not wholly; they, they cherry picked quite a bit of it. In fact, the Second Amendment is an interesting study on that, where the Articles of Confederation had something very similar to the Second Amendment, but it was much more explicit about uh, public stores of arms and you know being used for militia purposes. And they cut out a lot of that into the modern Second Amendment, uh, which I is is its own subject, but. At, at any rate, I, I digress. Um, the decision comes down to having that centralized power. And that's really where the push-pull starts the hardest, is how much should the centralized power you know, have over the states? And, of course, you know, we've heard states' rights. That's been something that's been preached in this country for, for basically since its founding, this idea that the states should have the power to really regulate themselves as much as possible, and the federal government should basically stay out uh, as much as possible. Federalism itself says, you know, that's that's great, but we have to have some uniformity. We have to have 
the ability to, you know, pull on the levers of power at the centralized government, the, the center federal government, and move things for the country together, economic policy, tax policy, uh, defense policy, and general, you know, public good policy, so to speak. And that's where the Hamilton and Jefferson divide really enters, right? When the government first starts, uh, you know, you go from 1776, Articles of Confederation come after the revolution concludes, and then eventually in 1787 we get the Constitution. And, you know, Washington becomes the president, we have Hamilton, and we have Jefferson. Now, uh, if I'm guessing a lot of folks listening to this have seen uh, Hamilton, or at least listened to it at least once, probably if you're like me, you've listened to it uh, an inordinate number of times that you probably can't actually can and would be embarrassing if you did. And it's a great musical, and it is informative. It's got some great history in it, but it also, you know, naturally, it's entertainment. So it leaves out a lot of context when it comes to sort of the Jefferson-Hamilton-Washington power triangle. And it really was a power triangle. Washington was obviously the tip of the triangle, the top, and then Hamilton and Washington sort of were pulling on him to try to get the, the angle to change to come their direction. Ultimately, Hamilton won that debate. He, flat out, he won the debate. Um, and Jeffersonian-style uh, democracy, which would have looked significantly more like the Articles of Confederation, became subordinate to the Hamiltonian model, which is really what the modern U.S. system is based on. Our financial system uh, is certainly based on that. So this Hamiltonian strand really starts to grow and permeate early, and then it sort of dies off a little bit in the 19th century in the Jeffersonian model, this anti-federalist model, really picks up steam. And then, of course, we get the Civil War, which is a, a serious clash of the Federalist and Anti-Federalist, the Hamilton and Jefferson style uh, model, right? When they talked about Lincoln, they didn't talk about him as a, a president. They talked about him as a tyrant. They talked about him as like he was behaving like a king. That's that Anti-Federalist uh, rhetoric. And, and we you hear it today, right? You hear it echoed uh, today on the right, there's there's a heavy anti-federalist uh, bent on the right, and it's interesting because the left has sort of adopted a, a more federalist stance, a more Hamiltonian stance uh, in a lot of its policies, uh, and we kind of have now this sort of weird hybrid in both sides of the debate where everybody sort of plucked some from each side, right? And so the tension still remains, but now the tension is just a little bit different, it's a little bit more nuanced as a result of that sort of cross-pollination that has occurred. And that's what brings us then to the more uh, modern era. So if you go post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction, and then we get into the modern era, and that's when we start to see uh, the real tension between the uh, Hamilton and Jefferson ideals start to kind of take shape. And then eventually, in uh, kind of the mid-20th century, you start to hear this new jurisprudence idea coming out called originalism. And I'm going to talk about that for a second and then get into more verse Harper exactly. So when originalism first comes around, it really it doesn't catch a lot of steam very quickly. And then Antonin Scalia becomes kind of the poster boy, right? Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, 
most noted for his preaching of originalism. Um, I think that a lot of legal scholars would agree that if you read his opinions, the idea that he's actually applying originalism uh, in many of his opinions is somewhat of a laugh. Uh, he, he certainly bent things in ways that would create outcomes. Uh, now, he was also an absolute lion when it came to the Fourth Amendment for the, for the most part. Uh, but in most ways, he was a real Hamiltonian justice. In fact, there's a great uh, book about Scalia being a Hamiltonian written by Dr. Jim Staub, uh, who is actually a friend of mine and a very smart book uh, explaining all this. And he just released another book about uh, Thomas that sort of lays out his federalism as well. And so Scalia helps start this federalist society. And the federalist society is a, at its core, it is a strong central power Hamiltonian type group. Uh, but even within the Federalist Society, there is serious disagreement uh, because you have now, like I talked about that cross-pollination, so you've got some Jeffersonians uh, who very much don't like the centralized power. So if you, you, know, you want to look at Thomas and Scalia as cohorts, you can find their differences there. You can find the difference where Hamilton uh, is the influence on Scalia and Jefferson is the influence on Thomas. And that lasts for a long time. The Federalist Society grows, uh, and it becomes this sort of uh, recruiting and breeding ground for what are called, a lot of times, conservative justices. And I think that's probably a misnomer uh, to call them simply conservative justices. And it really sort of you know, belies the the splits that, that you see. And so when we get to Moore versus Harper, uh, this case is about the North Carolina voting laws. And really the question that it comes down to is, can there be what's called the independent state legislature theory? Do the states have so much power over elections that they get to have all the power? They get to make all the rules and basically the federal government can't step in. Of course, we know about the Voting Rights Act, and there are cases along the way that, uh, unfortunately, the Roberts Court almost completely destroyed the Voting Rights Act in a previous case. Uh, but this case was about sort of upholding the, the, the essence, sort of the skeleton of the Voting Rights Act and letting it stay in place in general. So this opinion is 6 to 3, Moore versus Harper. And when you look at the mix... It really tells you what you need to know about the sort of Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian uh, grouping on the court. So in the majority, you have Justice Roberts, who a lot of folks would say is a conservative justice, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, all of whom people would say are liberal justices. And then you have Kavanaugh and Barrett, of course, recent appointees. These are Trump appointees and uh, folks who... I think, you know, would be labeled in the day-to-day -day as conservative justices. In the dissenters, you have Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito. Again, these are Republican appointees, and uh, these are the kind of uh, justices that uh, would be labeled as conservatives. So how do we get three conservatives on one side, three conservatives on the other, 
and yet the quote-unquote liberal justices are paired with three conservatives in this six-to-three opinion. Well, back to that cross-pollination of the Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian. Roberts, Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson, what they're saying in this opinion is the federal government has the power. They are bringing a Hamiltonian interpretation versus Thomas Gorsuch and Alito, who are bringing a Jeffersonian interpretation. Uh, One of the quotes, poll quotes from the opinion is, when state legislatures prescribe the rules concerning federal elections, they remain subject to the ordinary exercise of state judicial review. And the essential idea is that the independent legislature of the state, right, that the state's legislature doesn't get to just do whatever it wants and throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, when it comes to federal election laws, that they do have to follow them and that the courts are allowed to enforce those laws, right? It's a very simple idea as far as as far as that goes. Uh, there has been a lot of reporting uh, on it, and, you know, the Missouri Independent headline uh, is U.S. Supreme Court Rejects Theory that would have radically reshaped election rules. I think that's a fair headline. I think it describes it well. Uh, There was uh, a a concurring opinion as well by Justice Kavanaugh, uh, and it's worth looking at this stuff and reading. I'm not going to read all of it to you, Um, but, you know, the bottom line is that the, the court is saying very clearly that these election laws are subject to judicial review and that it doesn't simply allow state legislatures to do whatever they want. Uh, Justice Roberts wrote, We are asked to decide whether the Elections Clause carves out an exception to this basic principle. We hold that it does not. The Elections Clause does not insulate state legislatures from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review. Um, You really can't say it much more plainly than that. Uh, he, He goes on to say the court's uh, may not transgress the ordinary bounds of judicial review such that they arrogate her- themselves to power vested in state legislatures to regulate federal elections. And then they further say we decline to address whether the North Carolina Supreme Court strayed beyond the limits derived from the Elections Clause. The legislative defendants did not meaningfully present the issue in their petition for cert or in their briefing, nor did they press the matter at oral argument. So, that's something that it was brought up. Hey, we think the Supreme Court of, of North Carolina went beyond its its authority, and basically the Supreme Court said, well, you didn't give us enough information to even address that, so we're not going to. We're not going to take a position on that uh, really uh, at all. So uh, it also says, uh, from Robert's opinion, uh, state cases, debate at the convention, and writings defend, defending the Constitution all advance the concept of judicial review. And in the years immediately following ratification, courts grew assured of their power to void laws incompatible with constitutional provisions, where you can break it down to federalism versus anti-federalism, which goes all the way back to Hamilton and Jefferson, pulling each one of them on the arms of Washington at the founding of the country. Thanks for sticking around. I hope that was uh, somewhat interesting and informative. And uh, uh, check out Flyover View tomorrow. Uh, just a reminder, we're not going to have any shows next week for the 4th of July. Nothing new. We are going to drop uh, an old show where we do a, uh, a Mount Rushmore draft, essentially, of patriotic movies. Rachel and Sean and I, it's a lot of fun. We had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun doing it, and uh, it's from a couple of years ago. 
and so I'm going to drop that for next week for 4th of July. But other than that, we're all taking the week off. We hope you have a great and fun and safe 4th, and uh, we'll be back the week after that, fresh and ready to rock and roll with everything that's out there. Be well. The Heartland Pod is a production of Midmap Media, LLC. Follow us on Twitter with at the Heartland Pod. With email, you can reach us, heartlandpod2020 at gmail.com. Online with heartlandpod.com. Subscribe and please sign up for our Patreon with patreon.com slash heartlandpod. Become a podhead or an official podgressive today and unlock all of our content. See you at the next show.